Welcome to the Learn Beach Volleyball Fast podcast, the podcast where we apply the science of mastering skills faster, stories of successful people, life hacking concepts, and other cool stuff to the sport of beach volleyball. If you're someone who is serious about getting better at the sport and wouldn't mind accelerating your learning curve and career with ideas that have been previously hard to find within the beach volleyball space, you'll probably like it in here. I'm Alex, the host of the podcast as well as the creator of the bigger Learn Beach Fall Fast project. Now, let's get started. What's up? It's Alex here. Welcome to the third episode of the podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'm talking, I'm having a long, long, long talk about a bunch of different topics with uh, a guy called Johan Rinnensland. He's the creator of the Swedish Beach Volleyball podcast. He's also a former elite player and he is also uh, the person that has the coaching courses. Basically, he teaches coaches how to coach in Sweden. So in reality, this episode was actually the first one that I ever recorded for the podcast. We recorded it about a year ago in April 2019, and it's almost April 2020 right now when I'm releasing this. And it was a little bit funny because I sent the raw episode to Yuan a few weeks ago, and we both listened to it. And he was like, hmm, interesting. Uh, I've I've learned new stuff since <laughs> since we recorded this, and and I agree, I have too. Uh, basically, we both realized that we have some deeper insights into some of the things we talk about, um, and this is for me. This is kind of why I like you on. Uh, he is a person that is challenging himself, questioning himself, 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 and. Um, basically is evolving as a coach because he understands that beach volleyball is a very, very, very deep subject and nobody really knows everything about beach volleyball. So therefore, you, as soon as you as a coach get stuck in that you think you know everything, then, well, basically that's, that's kind of killing your possibilities to become a better coach. Anyway, that might sound like, okay, why should I listen to this episode? Because if you know, if you guys know things better now than before, this is a two and a half hour long conversation that is split into three episodes, and there is a lot of topics in here that you have probably absolutely never thought of about how to become a better beach volleyball player. I believe it's going to be very valuable for you to listen to. It's going to put a lot of new thoughts in your head and a lot of new paths to to go and discover. And if you would be someone that has actually thought about all of these things that we are talking about in this episode, then you should definitely um, send me a message because then I definitely want to get you on the podcast because you're going to be a very huge volley nerd in that case. So uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoy the episode. And now without further ado, let's uh, welcome you in Island. All right, so we got the first uh, first interview guest here for for the Learn Beach Volleyball Fast podcast. We got Johan Rinnensland, uh, and uh, you're actually who are you? You have started the Swedish Beach Volleyball podcast. Yes, which is actually the reason I first started talking to you. 
You were my <laughs> first fan about a year and a half ago. That's how we got to know each other. <laughs> but that's not your only background. You have a, a lot of uh, beach volleyball background. Yeah, I started playing in '91. Uh, uh, before that, I um, I played a bunch of different sports. But uh, as soon as I found vo- volleyball and beach volleyball, I was really hooked. So um, I started uh, in a small town here in Sweden and uh, had the fortune of finding people who, who practiced uh, almost every day. And uh, so I, I joined them and uh, we played volleyball during the fall, winter and uh, spring and then beach volleyball all through summer. And Okay, so you played both indoor and beach yeah, in the beginning. for probably the first uh, 10 years or so. Okay. And you, you said you found immediately a group that was that played every day? Yeah, not well, they all didn't play every day, but I found groups that did train so I could train every day. Um, when I was 15, 16, I trained, I think, seven or eight times a week okay. uh, already. So a couple of times with the school activity and then with the club in, in the small town of Vensbori. Oh. No, but we. I was the youngest uh, at the time. And uh, during the summer was really awesome because both guys and girls, and we had a big, uh, big old military tent that we uh, put in the back of the car and uh, we tried, we drove to the tournament. We played Saturday, partied Saturday night, all slept in the big tent together. And someday we played mixed tournaments, uh, which was perfect for me. Okay, I see. So how was it being the youngest in the, in the group? Were you also the least skilled or? In the beginning, yeah, but I, I was quick i was so serious almost right away that i sort of caught up with the others kind of fast because they weren't as serious as i was okay i see interesting where did that seriousness come from i think i've always had the mentality of trying to win at whatever i i did uh social games uh any competition, uh, sports or whatever, uh, I always wanted to win. Interesting. So, so just like ever since you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. I I hated to lose, and uh, <laughs> now as an adult, I mean, learning about myself through my kids and through my wife and every and through life, I I've come to the realization that I I'm. I don't have autism and I don't have ADHD, but I'm on the sort of on the way towards both, which makes me kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, when I do something, I do, I really do it and I take it very seriously often. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. So this, this makes me think of something which is not at all what I was planning to talk about, but that's, that's why we're having this conversation. Did you feel like that mentality that you always wanted to win? Did it help you to win? So for the listeners, uh, Yuan's podcast here, he has done a lot of uh, episodes in sports psychology. And that's actually one of the first reasons I reached out to him. Because uh, I was so happy that I I had heard of Yuan and I had heard of 
him being interested in sports psychology. Yeah. And I was like, when I heard that the person who's going to start the beach volleyball podcast in Sweden is interested in sports psychology, because there's a lot of people in this sport that are not interested in sports yeah. psychology. Even, even militantly against sports psychology sometimes. <laughs> Surprisingly, uh, <laughs> yes. So... So I reached out to him and, uh, and I think I told you something like, I'm so happy that whoever is starting this thing actually is looking at that part of the game as well and is, yeah. is interested. Uh, so we had a few <laughs> sports psychology discussions before yeah, and uh, we might be going for another one here. Yeah, But cause that's really interesting. I've, I've seen... I've seen, I think, the category of people that you're talking about that just have has this competitive drive naturally. Yeah. Uh, I was never one of those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but did that? Did you feel like you would never need sports psychology? Uh, honestly, looking back, I really would have needed it, but I, I, I don't think I would have uh, trained as hard as I did if I didn't have this. Uh, it probably drove me to compete during practice more than other people but I also got more angry than anyone else uh, which was not so good for my development um, I, I think uh, my anger issues has been one of the biggest uh, downsides of my career um, I've been quite open about them <laughs> after my career as well <laughs> yeah but, um, yeah and how, how down I would get after losing a, uh, a match or going out in a tournament. Uh, that would devastate me for a week, maybe two weeks sometimes. Really? That long? Yeah, yeah. It was really bad. Until you would get to play the next tournament or just until uh, who knows what? Depends uh, on what, what tournament it was. Some tournaments were only once a year. I mean, the big ones. Uh, uh -huh. Swedish champs, the the... Swedish grand finals and um, losing out, out in the qualies somewhere I I hated it and I, it, it hurt me really bad okay interesting yeah do you agree with me if I say that sports psychology and psychology maybe in general and maybe even personal development it's it's kind of like uh, People don't think that they need it, and and some people are even more blocked towards it. I'm 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 seeing. Tell me if, if I'm wrong here. I'm seeing maybe some people that are having actual competitive success by having that mentality that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. That really going for the competition, really having that winner's mentality, and really going for it. Uh, and becoming angry and, and really putting your heart and soul into the game. Yeah. I can sometimes feel that people have success with it. Yeah. And therefore, you might even be even less curious about actually learning about sports psychology or the mental side of the sport. I, because you already feel like what you're doing is working. There's a Norwegian sports psychology book. I can't remember the name of it now, but one of the which was one of one of the first uh, sports psychology books I read, uh, and he talks about uh, something he calls modus 
uh, which is sort of uh, your mental state uh, during competition or during training and he, he talks about how how to control and how to uh, how to choose your own uh, mental state and how it can be very different from one athlete to another so i i think what you're going for is that some people uh, actually play their best when they're angry uh-huh but for some people it destroys their chances of competing well yeah and some people probably play their best when they're calm some people when they're uh, excited some people you, you know yeah. what i mean mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i listened to an interview of todd rogers a while ago uh, about how how he always had the same um, warm-up uh, before practice before games before everything to to control how he wanted to be um, during a game just to get into the same routine every uh, i guess i guess so that it's like one game is not different from yeah. one the yeah. the arena game championship finals is not different from whatever Sunday. I I used to think that uh, to be serious, you had to be angry when you failed. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And when I realized this was actually only just a few years ago, uh, when I had the, one of the best players I coached at the time who never got angry. Uh, and he was he, he sort of we had a talk about it and he sort of co convinced me that he was serious even though he laughed when, when he missed <laughs> for the Swedish listeners they, they, they would know uh, Alexander Herman uh, uh -huh. yeah. showed me that um, that you can be very serious even if you don't get angry when you, when you miss <laughs> that's and you as a coach did not believe that was a possibility no no I I always I to be honest, I almost looked at him like, yeah, he's he can have a chance to be pretty good, but he will never be the best because he doesn't because get angry. He's, he's not serious, serious enough. Yeah. Uh -huh. And now he's probably, I mean, at least one of the top three, four players in Sweden. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because there is, a, there's definitely something about. I've listened to some signcast, and and there it is. I think. In there they've discussed that some people like like this you know when you play well like you start screaming and giving high fives and whatnot and some yeah. people some other people are more like just calm like just yeah. stay focused all the time yeah and uh, how do I describe this I have this feeling that I, I know from playing sometimes I get into this feeling it's like everything is very quiet yeah uh, I'm hyper focused and hyper pumped inside, yeah. but I can just be calm in my body still. Yeah, and it's a really it almost feels like a uh, not a hot cup of of coffee, but but like a thermos, like a <laughs> what's that in English? <laughs> I, I don't even know the container to keep uh, something warm. <laughs> exactly. Maybe it's thermos in, in English. I'm not sure. It could uh, be. <laughs> but it's almost like a bubbling thing that just keeps. Yep. But it, but it never it never releases. It never has the 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 air release. You just like keep the momentum and like a warm feeling in your body that gives you energy. Yeah. 
I mean, there are some really good examples of uh, that are, for me, seem very obvious. Obvious that some of the uh, best players have actually either themselves or their coaches have thought about how to to control the their uh, state of mind when they play. Look uh -huh. at the, for example, the German women, the Dutch women, who always do the same hand clap, uh -huh. no matter if they lose a point or win a point. In comparison, you can look at, for example, the Polish guys who always uh, hang their heads when they're losing <laughs> a couple of points. Uh, so I, I think uh, in the sports psychology uh, department, if, if you can find out when you play your best and sort of take action to be there more often, that's uh, that's a very big thing if you want to become the best. And for, I mean, for uh, Alex... I talked about before for him it was to try and be happy no matter what uh-huh for him that was the best okay so 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 you basically just map out you you look at some past games and when did I play the best what was my mood yeah. then yeah. and yeah. then you just repeat that figure out how to be that yeah and I mean for for most people that's sort of being excited somewhat positive somewhat uh, sort of expecting something cool to happen i think uh -huh. but maybe not for everyone there's a great story that um uh, about another alex <laughs> that i coached uh, who's also one of the best the swedish players now alexander annerstedt mm -hmm. who a couple of years ago had a he sort of played he didn't play as well as he wanted to but uh -huh. he decided to to always play with a big smile on his face uh-huh and he played his best beach volleyball uh, when he did that, uh -huh. <laughs> which was uh, just what I was talking about—a a way to control his mental state. Uh -huh. So that's that's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I've been reading this this book lately. It, it's a it's a tough book to get get through. It's called the Performance Cortex, I think. Okay, it's basically about how signals go in the brain and. It's it's brain science, but applied on sports. And yeah. I think a lot of business on on baseball because uh, well, baseball hitters they have to take very quick decisions. So they've been studying them anyway. Uh, there was something in that book that alluded towards actually brain signals going faster when you have dopamine in your brain. Yeah, like kind of like dopamine being like an oil. Yeah, and then the actual electrical signals go faster. And if I'm not mistaken, this has been studied as well. There's one study, I haven't read the study, but I've read someone who talked about the study, <laughs> which is what I do. I don't have the time or the energy to, so to read the... this. this is... <laughs> but I, it, it was from a, from a good source that they did a study on, on weightlifters. Uh -huh. uh, and if you picture a weightlifter in your mind, what they do when they lift a heavy weight, they sort of grunt and have uh -huh. an angry face on. But they told the, the weightlifters to smile uh, when they lifted the weight. And apparently they increased the weight they could lift by 7, 11 percent, something, something in that. Just uh, by area. smiling? Just by smiling. <laughs> okay, I need to try that at the yeah. gym next time. So, <laughs> I mean, I think there's something there, uh huh, for sure. That's interesting. Yeah, because I I'm not necessarily smiling when I'm at the gym, but I, I I 
I've practiced this like the same type of focus as as when I play beach volleyball. Also when yeah. I'm at the gym, like really feel my body and feel what I'm doing and, yeah. and know what I'm doing and why, uh, which gives me this sort of big enjoyment. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily smiling, but I I really like. <laughs> not like myself, not like my muscles, but I like my mental state when I'm at the gym. Yeah, uh, I had a friend tell me once that a friend that I sort of it's like a friend's friend. And he was yeah. like, I saw you at the gym, but you look so focused. So I, couldn't, <laughs> I didn't dare to come and talk to you. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I I don't think it's rocket science. I I don't know if you've, if uh, you've heard about the. Um, I, it's it's a quite famous study. I used to talk about it in my uh, coaches' uh, um, train when I uh-huh. coach when, other coaches. When you tr- train other coaches, which yeah. we're going to talk about. Um, and uh, I used the example of the the study where they had people going into job interviews, either uh, take a, a power pose, think big uh, big. Uh, ape uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> protecting his uh, his family or whatever uh, or superwoman or something like that uh-huh. and they would do that for I think two minutes before going into the job interview and the other uh, control group would uh, sort of slouch uh, together okay. uh, before going in and the success rate I mean the, the job interviewers wouldn't know who had done what uh-huh. But the amount of people in the power post group getting actual job offers was uh, much higher than the others. And that was two minutes before before the interview. So imagine what that could do when you play beach volleyball. And I, I think it would be kind of natural to think that smiling would be in the same uh, uh-huh. category. I mean, if you, if you can raise the dopamine, uh, lower the stress hormones by sort of pushing your shoulders back, chest out, uh, head high. Uh-huh. If you can do that, then doing it with a smile. I, I think it's not <laughs> yeah. far-fetched to think it's the same that applies. So exactly. I think there's definitely something there. I usually talk about uh, uh, sort of, I have this very weird mental imagery going on uh-huh. where it's sort of a little bit about the, of the matrix where uh, you see two beach volleyball players on court uh-huh. and a small uh, small midget <laughs> runs in with a tray. And <laughs> on the tray, there's two... Uh, you can choose if there's two pills okay. a la matrix or if there's two uh, uh, syringes. Okay. Uh, one blue one and one red one. And you can choose which one you want to take. And for me, that's the same as power pose or uh, head, head uh-huh. down like some of the Polish... Polish guys so Uh the one makes you 20% more likely to win the next point and the other one makes you 20% less likely to win the next (laughs) point and you have a choice I like it I mean it's it's kind of simple if you look at it that way you know what I would want to see (laughs) I would want to see see someone do stats on that yeah (laughs) like if you would actually be able to find any significance over time I I would bet point to point. I would bet on... all my money, my house, <laughs> probably my wife as well. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll take the wife out of it. <laughs> yeah, keep her. But money and case. house going in. For sure. <laughs> you think that? 
Yeah, I, I'm not gonna bet against you for sure. <laughs> that would be a really interesting study to read, and it would honestly be quite easy to do. I mean, w- when you look at the team playing, I I uh, sports bet on beach volleyball a, a bit, mm-hmm. and when uh, when I open the app and look at my cell phone, it's I mean I can barely see who the players are. Uh huh. But when I immediately see what team is winning and what team is losing based on their body language, I think there's something wrong. Uh huh. And it happens a lot. Okay, so that's super interesting. We could... Wait, what did you just say? I think I bet my wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. So right, exactly. What I was gonna say before we started this interview. We talked about um, the Xeoman tournament that's going yeah, on yeah. right now. No, it's Sunday today, so yeah. uh, it's been going on. Uh, and I asked you, like, because it was who who won, and uh, Molan Sorum had. Where did they lose? Semis? Uh, third round, uh, probably quarters or uh, the one game before that. I I think quarters maybe. Uh huh. So, so anyway, what what I what I told you was was isn't B twelve all kind of just a lottery <laughs> because because like anyone seems to be able to win, uh, but now is it would you actually guess that whoever wins is no, but uh, I mean if if you and uh, Jonas went to that tournament, would you stand an equal chance to no, win? No, of course not. Of Sorry, course not. Of it's course not, not a lottery. No, no, no. lottery. It, the thing is, I think on on. Probably more so on the men's side at the moment. There are so many good teams, but I mean, there's there's still only three or four, maybe five or six that are really likely to win a big tournament. Uh-huh. Then you have maybe ten more teams that can win, but I, I if I mean I could probably pick three or four teams and be fairly fairly sure that they would win. 75% of the tournaments this season mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though in any given game they, they can lose for sure yeah. I mean yeah. the ball is round and everything but uh, it's 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 so obvious that some teams have done the job from one season to the next uh-huh. I mean you can look at uh, Krasilnikov and Stojanovski now who, uh-huh. who won and it's so uh, apparent that they've done they've done their work Stojanovski's serve is better, his hand setting is better, uh, his approach and his attack is better. Uh, so he's actually changed his technique? He still has a goofy approach, Okay. but I think for, for some reason he looks quicker and he looks maybe, maybe straighter in the air. Okay. Uh, I, I would say he's better at attacking and I would be surprised if he hasn't spent a lot of time practicing hand setting. Okay. Uh, he did hand set a bit last year, but uh, he got called a bit and uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always that like well, people say it's it's a, the sport is all mental, but but it's it's I see it more like uh, requirements. If, yeah. if you have something that's not there, yeah. if you have no technique, then you're not going to make it. Yeah. If you have no mentality, you're not yeah. going to make it. 
if you have no strategy, you're probably also not going to make it. Yeah. I mean, there are some really interesting things. Um, there's, uh, I mean, look at, for example, Kantor and uh, Losiak, uh -huh. the Polish guys. They're awesome. They're freaking awesome players. But when they start losing, they hang their heads and they start losing even more. Uh -huh. And if they play against Phil Dalhauser, they come out on court starting with their heads hanging low. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, <laughs> sports psychology isn't developed amongst all teams. No, no. But some teams do it. And look at the, look at the German girls, for example. Laura Ludwig and Kira Wackenhorst. They had to be really, really strong mentally going through that season, winning everything. They had all eyes on them. They had injuries all the time. They, they had to be really, really strong. Uh -huh. yeah. And I'm 100% I'm sure that they've worked on it. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you go on the German team, if you go on their website, they have like a, the team. Yeah, like it's uh, it's the only thing I've seen so far that like a team has like their own sports psychologist, yeah. their own like physicists. Yeah. I think they have everything. <laughs> they have a very professional team. It's the same team that helped um, uh, Jonas Reckemann and oh, yeah, yeah. Brink, mm -hmm. uh, four mm -hmm. years before in the Olympics 2012. I mean, another example. I talked to some of the one of the Swedish guys who were um, I forget where one of the Asian one star tournaments now. And he said the Chinese guys, they beat everyone in practice. They are so tall, they jump so high, and they're so good. But when, when the tournament starts, they're like small kittens. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. So Probably looking up to the big uh, US, Brazilian, European names and seeing we can't beat them. Yeah. And I mean, there's also the culture thing. I, I think... Yeah, well, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, culture can be a really interesting yeah. topic. Actually, yeah, I think uh, this is also a sandcast thing. I think Triborn said once that once he played on a big tournament and he felt like he was able to play there, yeah. then he felt like he belonged there. Yeah. And that like changed for the future. Like, yeah. don't quote me on that, yeah. but... But but I'm starting to feel that same type of effect myself, like as I'm getting better, as I'm getting to play with better yeah. people. And like once I've played with a group of people that before felt unreachable, yeah. but I've played like a set or, or whatever, um, king or, or whatever, uh, or paradise, like what's that called? King of the court. Yeah. And, uh, and I feel like I can survive. I feel like I can win. I feel like I actually sometimes win or have the chance to win then yeah. all of a sudden I like the confidence just jumps up I mean I, I watch quite a lot of uh, old uh, AVP footage as uh -huh. well uh, which is really really cool I mean the production and uh, the players and the spectacle was awesome uh, but I, I just watched a couple of weeks ago uh, Eric von Oymana uh -huh. uh, played the tournament after he won his first one and the commentators were, were always commenting that he looked so much more confident after uh -huh. his win the weekend before and how much better he was playing. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a mental mental skill. That, yeah. But <clears throat> do you think you can develop that mental skill without actually winning? Like, 
is it something that you have to be able to experience first like go and win something and then you can start believing that you can win something or can you i think you can train it for sure but i'm um i'm not so sure we have the um it's it's easier to go find a coach uh who helps you with hand setting for example uh-huh uh, if, if you're a young beach volleyball player, you can find a coach who can help you with hand setting and what technique to use and how to move your feet and whatever. Uh, but to find someone who can show you what steps to take to learn to win, it's not as obvious, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. But for sure, I think it can be. I think it can be taught and learned. Yeah, yeah. Have you read um, shit? What is it? Psycho Cybernetics? No. It's uh, it's basically a, it's a anyone should read that book. Like it's it's definitely one of the more influential books I read. Yeah. Uh, it's basically well, kind of like a lot of other books talks about just like uh, your beliefs about yourself and your self image, like yeah. reprogramming what you believe you are, because yeah. then it talks about it has many. Uh, ways to describe it but like a thermostat like uh if if your thermostat is put on 20 degrees celsius like that's what it's gonna make your room to be whether it's colder or, or, or warmer yeah uh, but sort of like you believe i i belong here yeah <laughs> and that's where you're gonna belong like your body is just gonna know that what you actually truly believe about yourself yeah. and then it's gonna make that happen I read something along those lines uh, a while ago. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, uh, results, uh, outcome goals, uh, process goals, uh -huh. and people talk about how you have to set uh, both, but focus on the process goals. Mm -hmm. But I actually read about the third one, which was uh, identity goals, uh -huh. uh, which was sort of what you're talking about. Uh, that you decide you wanna you wanna win the Olympics in beach volleyball, so you decide to start acting like a, an Olympic Olympic gold medalist. Uh huh. I was uh, we um, my uh, wife and I then back then she was my girlfriend. Uh, we were in Manly, Australia for for a while, uh, and we were coached by Kerry Potharst for uh -huh. a while. And when we got invited back to her place to, to have dinner, uh, she showed us around and uh, she told us about how, how they had prepared for before they won the Olympics, um, her and Matt Cook in 2000. Uh, and amongst others, she had huge posters of herself uh, uh, winning that uh, that gold on the wall, one in the ceiling, I think even. Like at home? Yeah, yeah, at home. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but she also told us about uh, how she had, I'm not sure if she had hung an actual gold medal or if she had painted one on her mirror. Uh -huh. So that every morning, every night, she would see herself with the medal around her neck. Uh -huh. And they had a lot of those tricks. I mean, leading up to the Olympics, they weren't even top top five in the world. They had never won on the world tour. <laughs> so uh -huh. they did something right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes it takes going to those kind of ridiculous measures. Yeah. Like, 
who the fuck finds a gold medal on your on your mirror? Yeah. But you know, <laughs> if you do it and you see it every morning and yeah. you actually like, hmm, why is this gold medal here? Maybe yeah. it's because I actually I should believe in this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I like I like the idea of uh, uh, affirmations, um, like talking to yourself, telling yourself what you can do and what you are and stuff. So I actually I actually tried. Um, I don't know how interesting this is for uh, whoever is listening, <laughs> but a couple of years ago, I, I uh, uh, was part of starting a, um, a group in Gothenburg here with uh, 11 guys. Training were, group? Yeah, training group. For beach volleyball. For beach volleyball, yes. yeah. Guys who already were training really hard and they wanted to take it to the next level. They wanted to uh, basically start the road to the world tour. Mm-hmm. And we actually did yoga twice a week. Uh-huh. Which was cool. They bought it and we, we did it. Uh, and I also had them talking to the mirror after we were in the gym doing those yoga sessions, uh, saying, I am the king, I am the best, <laughs> stuff like that. Okay. Uh, and I'm not so sure everyone bought that. But, uh, but they, they, they did it. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that stuff is, is awesome. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. There's a YouTube clip of a, a dad with this little girl. Uh, they do this routine in the morning. I don't know. Maybe I can link it to you if someone wants to watch uh-huh, it. Yeah. Uh, it. I yeah. think it's awesome. He, he tells her, I am strong and she repeats. Uh, I'm, I'm not worth more than anyone else. I'm worthy. I'm this and that. And uh-huh. I think it re- it's really good. Okay. Interesting. So, so he basically guides her through, yeah, through a bunch yeah. of, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that makes me, uh, that makes me remember a podcast I listened to where, because I mean, can, can I just uh-huh. uh, yeah. say, because what what we usually do as humans is talk ourselves down. We we tell ourselves uh, what we did bad mm-hmm. when we go wrong and stuff like that. So I think this sort of balances it out a little bit. Um, oh yeah 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 so you just get a more healthy body even though you might go to ridiculous measures yeah what happens in your brain is in reality maybe a sort of a balance i mean say what you want about tony robbins but he has had a big impact on sports psychology and everything around it i I watched him today he's he's, one of the big things he says it's is you don't have to see everything positive uh but don't see it for worse than it actually is uh-huh. and i think i think that was something i read a, a number of years ago and it really stuck with me uh because the whole it, i mean i think that's the reason why the, this whole posi- positivism has uh-huh. gotten such a bad rep uh-huh yeah yeah because people say oh you can't just think positive yeah but then at least don't see it worse than it is mm-hmm and once you start getting that really, I've drilled this into my head. I've actually trained this uh-huh. quite hard. And now when I see people acting the way people act, it's kind of ridiculous how they make small things much worse than they uh-huh. than, than they are. Yeah. And on the beach volleyball uh, court, uh, I mean... Same there. Yeah. Yeah. My, my version of, of that theory is... I think everyone can learn to 
see more positively and more possibilities yep. than pretty much anyone does. Yep. Like you can, <clears throat> the more you understand the depth of a thing and yep. that there's sublevels to everything, the more basically that gives you more paths you can walk down. This is getting a little bit philosophical, but yep. basically if, if, let's say beach volleyball is, is a subject and the more you know about beach volleyball, the more sub-subjects you know, like there's hand-setting, there's passing, there's sports psychology, there's strategy, there's who knows what, knowing people. Yeah. Uh, and the more of those you know, and then under those, you also know more levels. So it becomes this like uh, exponential kind of uh, <laughs> tree. Yeah. Uh, basically, the more of those you know, the more possibilities for success you can see, because the more ways for you to grow, you can see, which means that all of a sudden, I think pessimism comes from sometimes from not being able to see ways forward. Yeah. But the more ways you have access to, the more possibilities you have to look positively at something and, yeah. and see more possibilities. So I think that's like a part of how I see it. Uh, and then also all the negative things, don't suppress them, don't ignore them. Look at them, see what they are, learn lessons from them. Yeah. As soon as you learn lessons from them, you actually are one step ahead than you were yesterday. Yeah. Because now you're actually smarter than you were yesterday, which now all of a sudden is a fucking positive thing. Yeah. <laughs> which means that you see even more possibilities for the future. Yeah. And then you continue and then it just grows and grows and grows and grows and yeah. you get faster and faster. <laughs> that's, that's sort of how, but that's sort of how I see this, this whole Tony Robbins. Yeah. It was, it's so funny. I watched Tony Robbins today. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I tried to get, um, the now famous, uh, Mark Burek to come work for us, uh, for our club in Gothenburg a couple of years ago. Uh huh. Um, and uh, it didn't work out in the end, but uh, he was there for a while and we trained a bit together and, uh, I forget what it was, but he he had some kind of injury if it was his back or his knee or something. Uh, so it was just a service receive uh, set uh, and standing uh, shots mm -hmm. uh, with the, that's all we did. And it was so different from how the Swedish mentality of training was, because every time he hit his uh, short cutty well, he would go, yeah, did you see that <laughs> fucking shot, man? <laughs> and he would raise his arms and I was like, what the hell is he doing? And then, I thought, and then I thought about who was crazy. Was it me going every time I, I did a great shot? I was like, yeah, that's to be expected. That's what I should do. Uh -huh. And when I missed, I was like, fuck, that was the worst ever. Uh -huh. So which one do we want to reinforce? <laughs> Have you heard Shell Enderhagen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, my house god. <laughs> <laughs> so I need, I need to take his theory in, uh, now. Uh, you heard, so Shell Enderhagen is, is a Swedish personal development guy. Yeah. And I listened to him in a Swedish personal development podcast. Basically, he said, there's this theory, which, uh, whatever, like whatever you put emotional weight into, yeah. any memory that you put emotional weight into, gets more burned into your yeah. like system and your yeah. brain. So the example for this is pretty much everyone remembers the exact spot where they stood when they heard about the 9-11, the, the Twin Towers, yeah. um, whatever, a terrorist attack. 
so if that's true, then that memories get burnt harder, more emotional energy you put into it, yeah. whether it's good or bad, because we also remember the best things that ever happened to us. Yeah. Basically, that's what he said. Most people say when <laughs> when something goes well, you go like, oh, whatever, that's expect, expected. Yeah. But when it goes to hell, then you get angry and you put a lot of emotional energy into it. Yeah. And if then movements in sports work anything like memories, yeah. that basically means that you're giving your brain signals that remember all this bad shit that yep. you're doing yep. and forget about all the good yep. <laughs> good stuff. I think Shelly has a story about two tennis players. I think the, the one of them is Björn Borg and the other one is a Swedish player who was the same age as Björn uh, and probably even better when they were young. Uh, but every time they went to do serve training, uh, he would focus on his one out of ten misses. He would uh, scream and yell and get angry while Bjorn would keep ripping his serves and just focus on the good ones and just forget about the bad ones. Uh-huh. And it only strengthens the story that we don't know the name of the other tennis player now, but everyone knows Bjorn Borg. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, Slatan is a big name everywhere now. Uh-huh. So, I mean, he's he's the perfect uh, example of this. Uh-huh. Uh, when he misses, it's it's always yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when he make he does something great, yeah, that's what Slatan does. <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. Yeah. So, so so he actually does that. I haven't watched him much. I'm probably Slatan is really more. interesting from a sports psychology perspective. I think. Uh, Tell me more. Well, I mean, he's he's like the he's the cockiest uh, guy around, but he does it in a sort of funny way. But he he always takes over wherever he comes. Uh huh. Okay. I don't know if we should dive into a slap. No, down. maybe not. Maybe not. But that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's. Uh... It's the, the the one person that everybody around the world knows. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. and I mean, watch a couple of interviews. Some people probably hate Slatan, but uh, because he, he is cocky, but uh, you can you can tell that he always has a sort of smile, uh, a sly uh-huh. smile doing okay. it. Um, and I think I think the 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 attitude of I I don't miss Slatan never misses. It's it's almost a little bit like Donald Trump. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but for Sports psychology, the way Slatan does it, it works. Yeah. So, so in a way, he probably knows that he's kind of being cocky or yeah, yeah, yeah. like a little bit yeah. obnoxious, but it's kind of funny that he is that. Yeah. And it, I think it strengthens him because he does exactly what we talked about. He uh-huh. makes sure that he remembers all the good things he do, does. Uh huh. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I know it's actually very natural, I think, to do that in sort of. Um, for example, if you play a no jump game, so you don't play B12 ball for real, but you play like a warm up game yeah. and you do something amazing. Yeah. It's really easy, actually, at least for me to be like, oh, fuck you guys, you, you can't take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there it's actually very natural when, yeah. to do that yeah. when it's like a um, sort of um, non serious yeah. whatever game. Yeah. Uh, but we should bring that into the, into the real game too. Yeah. <laughs> And I think there's guys that do it naturally, and I think you could watch them and train to do it in a way that works for you. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Let's let's go one one more place in the sports psychology. Right. I have my paper here with a bunch of questions, and we've probably gone for quite a while already, but <clears throat> I'm in no hurry. Uh, you mentioned the the Polish guys, yeah, uh, and they're slouching their head, yeah, and uh, we also mentioned culture before, but maybe we can go a little bit into culture. <laughs> sure. Uh, did you see the the Latvian players here in Gothenburg on the uh, one star? Yeah, last weekend. Yeah, uh, I didn't see them play now. No, I didn't see them play now. You didn't. Okay. No. Interesting, because let's see if you at all recognize this, and if it doesn't make any sense, we just skip it uh, or delete it from the podcast or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Samoylov's brother that came yeah. here. Yeah. No, no, Smedin's brother. Tom Smedin's. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was so funny because when they showed up on the in the semifinals, yeah, on, on Sunday, yeah. Uh, <laughs> for me, it felt like they played the, the Turkish guys, and for me, it felt like the the Latvian guys had been like having a few beers as a preparation. Yeah. And the, the other guys felt like they had been like meditating and doing yoga and like drinking healthy drinks. Yeah. Because <laughs> they like came and they were just like uh, energetic and, yeah. and happy and and looked healthy. Like they're yeah. just their faces looked healthy. And this weird description, but. That's how I saw it. Yeah. And they started playing. And it was like the Latvians were like warming up. Like they were joking. They were just like, you know, hitting yeah. some balls in the net and like laughing at each other. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like very, um, maybe arrogantly. I don't know if that's the right word. Anyway, when they started playing, the, the Turkish people, the Turkish guys won the first set. Yeah. And you could see that the Latvians were just like slow and, you know, things weren't working. But the interesting thing was that, so the Latvians actually ended up winning the whole thing. And they picked up some sort of, it's, I'm, I'm Finnish originally. So yeah. I have a little, little hint of this Eastern mentality in me uh, from since I was grown up. But it was almost like, <laughs> I would want to call that they had this like Eastern European hungoverness slash uh, discipline slash we can just figure this shit out yeah kind of confidence and they actually turned the whole shit, the thing around and won yeah and it, it feels like they have this um this culture where because it was like every other ball they were screaming at each other like i don't know what they were saying but this set sucked or whatever yeah and then the other ball they were like laughing yeah, <laughs> and it was just back and forth. It was a really interesting thing to just watch and yeah. and see like unfold in front of your eyes, like how their mentality worked in in the game. Yeah, because uh, it was somehow they just came to the court and trusted that they'll figure it out, and they did. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of layers in this. I mean, if that uh, if they do the same in training. I think that's going to make them very much uh, worse uh, trainer in training. Uh -huh, so, I mean, yeah. if you show up to your trainings doing that and then you do your drills like that, yeah. I, I honestly don't see you in the long run becoming as good mm -hmm. as the more serious Turkish guys in this yeah, example. Yeah, mm -hmm. 
So I and I mean it, it's problematic because you have people from all uh, all over the spectrum who succeed. Yeah. The way I try to there's uh, this um, British guy. Um, the marginal gains guy. I forget his name. Um, oh yeah, Brailsford. Dave Brailsford, I think his name is. He took over uh, the British cycling team before the uh, London Olympics a couple of years before. He got all the money in the world, and he sort of his his philosophy was to look at everything, every little detail, and see if they could make a screw one uh, percent lighter. To make the bikes go faster if they they famously brought their own pillows and mattresses uh, when they went to different hotels to sleep one percent better and his philosophy was we look at all these small things uh sort of can it make the bike go faster that mm -hmm. specific day and if so yeah we'll try to make it one percent better uh -huh. uh, so and he called this the uh, the marginal gains method and i mean if you look at it that way uh i think it's safe to say that the turkish way in your example is is the one that will make the bikes go faster <laughs> yeah 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 and, sure. and what, what i what what i i mean there's there have been some famous cases of, of people uh, on the world tour if you go to the national tours i'm sure it's the same if you look at the famous uh, american brothers bearded brothers uh -huh. they party uh -huh. But the way I look at it is if you take 1,000 teams that party uh -huh. and 1,000 teams that don't party and you give them a long time yeah. to develop as beach volleyball players, in what group will you have more uh, better players, yeah. Yeah. more successful players? Yeah. I mean, for one individual, sure, you can yeah. party and probably have great success. Yeah. You can skip uh, mental training. You can skip a lot of things. You can skip leg day. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if if you have a thousand players over ten or twenty years, uh, the group with the people who uh, lift weights, uh, don't party, and do sports psychology will have a better chance. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you there. Hey, it's Alex here again. So this thing that me and Johan are talking about here is according to me a very interesting topic and it's actually one of the topics that I have myself gained more experience and understanding in during the last year since we recorded this this episode so I thought I would actually end this episode with sharing some of those uh, those insights and before I do that to be fair to Johan in what will be the start of next episode he does allude to learning how to enjoy the things you need to do to become a better beach volleyball player. But I'm basically going to do a deeper dive into that right now. So these ideas are somewhat fresh in my mind. They're basically, I just lived for a few months in Bali, uh, the island of Bali in Indonesia, where I lived a somewhat different life from what most people live in, in Western countries, which... Um, allowed a lot of exploring of my mind and, and reality and, and whatnot, which was really interesting. And so just take these as ideas that might lead to something. Maybe one day I'll understand this even better, whatnot. But at least it's like a Kickstarter of, uh, of something that I know is rarely talked about. So 
what I think is that the human mind basically enjoys a lot being freed from social codes and like shoulds. So what I mean with that is you might have as a kid maybe or or maybe as an adult found yourself in a situation where something is hilariously funny and you're not allowed to really laugh but you're like you're in this situation with your friend and like you guys just catch your each other's eyes and you both know that you should not laugh right now but like you just can't stop yourself and you just start like absolutely bursting out in laughter in the situation where you absolutely should not so here for example there's a social code that you should not laugh but you do laugh and it's not only funny because you're laughing it's also like very freeing let me call for let's let's say your soul to to do this in this instance because you're somehow like breaking the social code and it's just like a very very memorable and strong experience for you um, another example of this is at least i have had this maybe you have too i've seen people back in the days I've been walking down the street and someone comes on the street as well, like singing, uh, walking or biking or whatever. And they're absolutely singing their soul out. <laughs> it might sound even bad. Nobody knows. But they are just out on the street where people can hear them and they're just singing fully. And at least my mind went like, this is interesting like what is this person doing why are they singing so fully and they don't care about how silly they look or how bad they sound or how embarrassing it is for them and i think some people <laughs> i think there's three categories in how to interpret when something like this happens either you go like this person is an idiot and you completely ignore it or you're like me you think this is really funny like but you kind of get curious, like, what is it in that person that lets them do that without... Because apparently they're not feeling bad about it. And then there's the third category, which is, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. And I do it myself. Anyway, um, also playing beach volleyball at the best. Um, some people have memories of when they played beach volleyball really, really, really good. And I think this is also like a similar experience where you're not thinking of things, you're not thinking about who's watching you, you're not thinking about what you should do, you just play and you're like experiencing experiencing the game at its fullest. And so anyway, I think the human mind feels very good when we have these sorts of experiences. And um, why I think because what alcohol does to us, because the conversation was about alcohol, what alcohol does to us is that it kind of is a drug that lets us break these like inner barriers that we have. It lets us break these like, whether they're social codes or they're like inhibiting beliefs that we have on, on ourselves, like alcohol makes people, for example, dare to have conversations that they don't dare to have normally why do we not dare to have these conversations normally 
there's something within us. There's some sort of rule that we have created for ourselves. Whereas it's like, no, I can't go up to this girl and talk to her. Like I'm too nervous. I'm too, it's too wrong, whatever. And for whatever reason, when people drink alcohol, like those rules kind of uh, disappear. And this is a little bit similar to the guy singing on the street. He just doesn't care. Um, so, so that's why I actually think it's kind of good to, okay, uh, in some instances to drink alcohol. Because I do believe that if you have this dry cut like uh, experience of life where you're just very, very methodical and you never experience these like um, experiences which would call, I would want to call like a full living experience or a soulful experience or, or whatever. Um, then I think it's life becomes sort of stale and dry and, and we probably, this is my guess, we're probably not as good beach volleyball players if we do that. And I think that's sort of why people kind of want to like have this pause and, uh, and have a drink and, uh, and be a little bit rebellious. So, okay. How does this tie to Bali? For me, one gateway to these sorts of experiences where I don't care about what people think about me, where I can express myself fully has been dancing because I did break dancing for a year, I think when I was um, 12 or something. So I had some like basic dance moves. And then when I grew up, I started uh, drinking and I usually went to parties where dancing was a part of the experience and then just over the years I've just like liked dancing more and more and more and more I know a lot of people have inhibitions to dancing and they're like they have this inner barriers like they're like no I can't dance people are gonna look at me I'm gonna look silly whatever I'm fortunate to not have had those like dancing is my way to just like be myself and I absolutely completely uh, love it and that has honestly been one of the big reasons why I have been drinking in my life because I I, I enjoy it so much and, and it's like the only place I've known where to go dancing is is um, is at the at the clubs <laughs> and, and various dance floors anyway so I went to Bali and um, I've been into meditation and stuff before because I, uh, I mean, through sports psychology and, and through volleyball. Uh, but I had this like, <laughs> I had like a personal philosophy uh, that I started living by a year or two ago, which was to try to never judge anything before I know about it more. So we humans, we have like when we see something, when we we see someone do something, whatever it might be, like it might be yoga and we go like, ah, oh, that's stupid. Like that looks boring and that can't be good. And um, or we hear about like the, the benefits of meditation or sports psychology or or maybe hand setting or whatever it might be. And and every now and then we, we go like, ah, oh, that, you know, we our minds make up all these reasons for why we should not try it and then we like find a reason that we can logically tell ourselves that okay we i should not try this because it's not worth my time i already know what i'm doing and it works and you know so i'll just continue with that anyway i adapted this personal philosophy that i will not judge 
I can and I will be open-minded. I will be trying to be radically open-minded to like anything. So Bali has a lot of yoga and like you know, meditation and what all these like sorts of spiritual practices, if you want to call them that. And um, one thing I had heard about maybe a year ago was something called ecstatic dance. And um, I never really knew what it was. But one morning, my friend in Bali, my neighbor, she was like, uh, I'm going to go to a yoga class and then there's an ecstatic dance afterwards. And it was the type of yoga that I had wanted to try for a long time, but hadn't. And, and I also was curious about the ecstatic dance. So I was like, okay, this is my morning to just be like open-minded. Let's just go for it and see what happens. And <laughs> what happened was I got to this, well, the yoga class was, was good at first. And then the ecstatic dance started. And uh, basically the rules of the ecstatic dance was that we are all here to express ourselves. No one should judge each other. You're allowed to do whatever you feel like doing. And uh, it's not a sexual dance floor. So it was a dance floor, but like you're not supposed to um, find a partner or, you know, be sexual or anything. It's, it's really just about dancing. And <laughs> what I realized was that when you have a dance floor where more than half of the people get into this state that I talked about, this freeing of social codes type of state where they're literally just dancing and having the time of their life. When like more, about more than half of the dance floor has that feeling, it becomes so incredibly uh, contagious that like everybody on the dance floor gets drawn into it. And like the word ecstatic, like really started making sense. Like it was an amazing experience where I was literally just dancing the, the heart out of myself. And like, um, I don't know, it was just amazing. So I don't need to talk much about that. But basically what I realized afterwards was that this ecstatic dance and a lot of other of these like spiritual practices in a way are a little bit like learning to be drunk but you're sober it's learning to fully express yourself without the help of alcohol it's just getting better and better and better at having these experiences um one little quick thing that i read about meditation maybe a couple years ago was um, it was some sort of guide on how to how to meditate and like questions about it and the question was do i need to uh, to do the chanting the alms and you know all the things that people make fun of when they like want to ridicule people that meditate um i hope you mean i hope you know what i mean like people chant in together like om whatever uh, and the answer to that was no you don't need to do that to meditate but after a while, you will <laughs> uh, when you realize the power of it. So chanting is kind of the same. It's also something that feels completely ridiculous at first. If you come from a Western country, you have all these like um, blocks within yourself that want to inhibit you from doing them. But once you just let go of those blocks and you're in a group and you make this beautiful sound together, and you just strip yourself out of these social codes that 
makes you think how ridiculous you look and you just feel like the togetherness of the people that you're doing it with it just becomes like another learning how to be drunk but you're sober type of experience so okay i rambled enough about this now i just wanted to share this because i think there's something to this um i agree with johan that it's healthier to not drink alcohol um I do think that the humans need the soulful experiences. And I might think that doing that through alcohol is better than not doing it at all. But I also want to say that I do think nowadays that it's possible to learn to be drunk sober. And that could be the ultimate win. That's where you get both. That's where you're healthy with your body, but you still have these soulful experiences which makes you like connect to people because before my okay i had two reasons to 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 be drunk which was to meet people and be social and uh, and have conversations with people and to dance and uh, since this morning in bali when i went to this ecstatic dance i realized i got that sober and i met people and i had really interesting conversations so after that moment like all my need to drink alcohol was just vanished because I had a place where I could find exactly the same things as I wanted to get from alcohol, but higher quality. It was cheaper and it's healthier. And I was like, this is amazing. Um, I'm not going to say that I will never drink in Bali again. Maybe I will someday. But like after that morning, I, I didn't I didn't drink anymore in Bali because uh, there was just no reason to do that. I found everything I wanted from drinking somewhere else in a more healthy and sober way. So, um, yeah, just wanted to mention this because I know that I know how our human minds work. Like someone had mentioned ecstatic dance for me once and I was like, oh, interesting, whatever. Then someone uh, mentions it again and you're like, OK, I've already heard about this once. And uh, then the third time or fourth time, maybe you're like, okay, maybe I'll go check this out. So maybe this is the first time that you have heard about these sort of thoughts. Uh, you might not buy into what I'm saying here yet. <laughs> maybe you will someday. I don't really care. Uh, but maybe I think ecstatic dances are going to get bigger and bigger in the world. Uh, so maybe in a year you'll see one somewhere and... Maybe you'll remember my experience and maybe you'll try it and who knows uh, <laughs> what that could lead to. And as I said, this is a somewhat new experience for me. These are new thoughts and I'm constantly learning myself. Maybe in a year I will think something else. Maybe I will understand this even better. Maybe in 10 years I wouldn't have said what I'm saying now. Um, but at least now you're introduced to the topic. All right. Uh, see you in the next episode where we continue listening to you want that.